Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello. So... I'm actually very excited about today's guest. I've been following him on Twitter for a very long time and throughout this conflict, that is. And he speaks from a pretty unique place of experience, which we need to hear. And and what I've tried to do, as I hope everyone has seen, is try to provide a kind of broad platform for different voices, Palestinian voices, Israeli voices. The, The one voice we haven't actually had is military expertise. And I think that is something which is very important to talk about in the current context. So uh, Charlie Herbert is a major general, uh, as I think people can see on the screen. He served 34 years in the army. Um, And he's been a fascinating voice throughout this horror. Um, And I think you'll see why it's so important that we speak to Charlie. Hello, Charlie. How are you doing, by the way? Owen, I'm really well. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me onto your channel. Now, it's nice to be here. Um, I mean, a bit of a caveat, if I could, Owen, you know, I, as you know, I, I'm not a Gaza expert. I'm not an Israel-Palestine expert. I, I've never been into Gaza. So to a certain extent, one, one feels a slight imposter talking about this. And everything that I've done online, all of the stuff I've done with the media, what I'm going to do today with you, it's kind of based upon my own military experience. It's a sort of compare and contrast. But I, I make no claims to being a regional expert. And I, and I must sort of stress that up front. I'm not a regional expert. I view this exactly as you say, through the prism of somebody with 34 years military experience, most of that spent in the post 9-11 period, where we made a lot of mistakes, Owen, a lot of mistakes. And, and what's interesting is I see the Israelis making the same mistakes. And, you know, I suspect we'll probably talk a little bit about that. Too much self-deprecating positions there, Charlie. Um, so I'll have to take you up on that. Your military experience is exactly why we need to talk to you. So I think that's, you know... We're, you know, we're, we're, we've got lots of guests talking about the uh, the history, but this, I think, is is such an important perspective. Can you just tell me, actually, just tell us a bit about your military experience? Yeah, I um, I joined the army when I was young. I was 17, left school at 16, joined the army at 17. I joined as a soldier, which is quite unusual for people who then go on to become officers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I joined at 17. I went to Sandhurst, which is our officer training academy in the United Kingdom, age 21, commissioned at 22 into Scottish Infantry Regiment. And I suppose I led a broadly sort of representative career for, for, for that sort of generation. So my younger years, uh, in 1985, back end of the Cold War, we were facing off against the Russians. But, but of course, I spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland during that period. And, and I talked quite extensively about some of the parallels. And I'm cautious about drawing comparisons between Northern Ireland and Gaza, but there are some comparisons worth exploring. So I spent a lot of, I spent about four years overall in, in Northern Ireland during my military career, you know, working in some, some pretty tough areas um, at the back end of that campaign as we ran into the peace process and, and the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland. I fought in the first Gulf War, aged sort of what, 21, 22, when, when we handled tens of thousands of Iraqi prisoners of war. That's kind of influenced my thoughts upon the way in which we we handle or the way in which the Israelis are handling detainees and prisoners of war. And I've commented quite extensively about that in, in this, you know, on social media. I, I served in Bosnia in the 1990s, 
you know, which is kind of very much war amongst people, populated areas. Everybody remembers those awful scenes of ethnic cleansing. Yeah, everybody remembers the violence against civilians. Everybody remembers those shocking scenes, you know, in Sarajevo of, you know, women and children being sniped at from, from the hills. And and it, it, it horrifies me that, that some of those scenes seem to be relived, you know, in, in 2023 and 2024. I found that very difficult to kind of get my head around. But, but I, I look at a lot of the images that are coming out of Gaza and, and it does remind me of the Balkans you know, in the early 1990s. And, and then, of course, you know, post-2001, my military career was dominated by by what I call the post-9-11 wars. Mm-hmm. Um, I did three tours in Iraq. Um, yeah, I'm, very, I, 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 I'm always cautious about talking about Iraq. Uh, and if I do, I, I remember what went wrong in Iraq. I, I remember those awful, you know, war crime atrocities that US servicemen committed up in Abu Ghraib. You know, I'd never preach anybody about about morality and about the treatment of prisoners because I saw what went on. There were some instances in the United Kingdom of war crimes and people went to jail. You know, they were very isolated down, down in Basra. You know, I, I saw and I read and I heard about rendition, detention without trial, Abu Ghraib, of Guantanamo Bay. You know, what goes wrong when, when a country is so traumatised by attack, in the case of the United States after 9-11, so traumatised by attack, but it loses its moral compass. And, and, and to a certain extent, you know, I think, I, I, I do think President Biden was trying to warn Israel after October the 7th, where America got it wrong and the dangers of losing one's moral compass as one seeks retribution for, for what happened on the 7th of October. Uh, and, then, and then the latter few years of my career was spent in, in Afghanistan. I did, I did three tours in Afghanistan, 2007, 2010, you know, 2000 and, 1718. I left the army in about what late 2019, and I went off to Somalia. I spent three years in Somalia working with the Somali government, uh, trying to help them on counter-terrorist stuff, develop their Ministry of Interior Security, trying to develop the help them in the fight against Al Shabaab. I've stepped completely away from the defence and security world. I, I do a little bit of military analysis. I, I don't do a great deal. I, 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 I sort of comment online about it, but more recently, I, I've done a little bit bits and bobs in the media. But, you know, my entire life has been spent, you know, in that defence and security sector. Uh, and so that's what I draw on as I watch these images coming out of Gaza. I draw on that experience and, and go, yeah, that looks right. Or, or that just looks profoundly wrong. Why am I seeing that? That just looks wrong. And trying to educate people on that side of life. So on that, you know, a crucial point is that I think the United Nations keeps saying this. Even wars have laws. Laws govern war. It's not a free-for-all. You can't just do what you want. It is violent, and it, inevitably in war, people, every every combatant side can say, inevitably there will be deaths, but that's not an excuse to do what you want. And uh, we have the Geneva Conventions, amongst other laws which govern, obviously, the conduct of of war. Just starting with prisoners of war, because you you've mentioned that a few times, and you've shared videos, some of the videos, and I found it just, this really speaks to the sense of impunity that, is felt by the Israeli state and Israeli soldiers in that they are posting overt war crimes on TikTok, serving up often for kind of comedic purposes. There's a brilliant account, a um, Israeli account, who keeps translating some of the videos. But for example, parading prisoners naked um, or be- virtually naked, sorry, stripped to their pants, 
um, um, contriving surrender scenes which are faked, getting them to chant uh, that they're slaves to a particular family of Israeli soldiers, uh, shouting, ridicule, you know, ridiculing them, ridiculing their lack of food, uh, but just degrading treatment. So maybe give some examples of that degrading treatment and where that fits into the conduct of warfare. Yeah, I mean, it's, as you say, war is bloody, it's violent, it's frightening. Um, and you can go from moments of very, very high intensity conflict, you know, a profound firefight where people are getting killed around you or injured to a point where you're taking prisoners. And, and, and you know, there are, there are rules and there are laws about the conduct of prisoners. Um, any decent person understands that. Area. Any decent person understands that. And it amazes me the number of undecent people on social media who seem to think that it's just a free fall. Yeah, it's not. Um, I, I think the piece that I became most uncomfortable with, I think it was in early December, when there were a lot of images shared on social media, clearly taken by IDF themselves, of detainees. These were not prisoners of war. These were detainees. We need to be quite clear on that one. They were civilians who had been detained by the IDF. Different rules for them. And, 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 and you know, I do understand the need. As, as I, I said to a number of people, I was challenged on this. Absolutely. What is the standard procedure in an environment where one detains a civilian who one thinks might pose a threat, might potentially be a suicide bomber? You know, one would normally hold them at a distance. One would ask them to remove their shirt open their shirt, potentially even kind of drop their trousers, or as we did in Afghan, you know, their shalwar kameez. But the moment one realises that they're not armed with a suicide vest, you know, you let people dress again. I mean, that's just kind of absolutely the norms. What, what we saw in those videos in, in early December of, you know, large groups of civilian men detained, you know, placed on their knees with their hands behind their head in, in uh, not necessarily stress positions, but certainly stress positions. Yeah, it, was, it was clearly designed to intimidate them. Well, and, and I sort of challenged this at the time. I got a lot of abuse for it. And then I think even the IDF themselves admitted, what, about a week later, 80 percent of those people after questioning were released. Now, now, is that a good tactic? Is that a good strategy for any military? No. Why not? Because those 80% who were released will never forget and never forgive their treatments at the hands of the other. Never forget the humiliation. They'll never forget the fear. They'll never forget the degradation that they felt when they were treated like that. So, 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 so they've just in one foul swoop radicalized, incentivized another group of young men, you know, men of fighting age, who, who who will probably, in the future, take up arms and fight against the IDF. And I can understand that. I mean, we didn't treat detainees like that in, in Iraq. Under no, no time, I've said this, no point in my 34 years of soldiering did I see detained civilians treated like that. I, I, I helped collect tens of thousands of Iraqi prisoners of war in, in what, 1991. You know, absolutely not. It, it doesn't help them. And, and of course, so there's that sort of tactical action and the impact on the individual. But but in terms of, of the strategic narrative that, you know, Israel's trying to achieve, trying to paint itself as the good side in a war against Hamas. That's what it's trying to do. And it spectacularly failed to do that in December with, with those images. And they're not isolated images. As you allude to, 
you know, I think that was the sort of the worst of the ones that I saw. But we constantly see gleeful scenes of, of IDF soldiers, you know, positively enjoying, perversely enjoying the destruction of, of Palestinian property, you know, houses, buildings, universities. I mean, and is gleeful dancing about it, laughing about it, celebrating it, posting it on TikTok. You know, that, that at best is stupid. At worst, it's deeply immoral. Deeply immoral, indicative to me of a of a of a reservist army uh, that's not perhaps as well led as it should be, that perhaps has a problem with self discipline. Um, it's not a, it's not a good place for any military to be, and I think it was images like that, Owen, but I think started to change people's perception of what was going on in Gaza in in late November, early December. You know, this, this huge wave, rightful wave of sympathy for Israel after the 7th of October, stripping away in November, December through the IDF's immoral actions and, and very foolish of them, um, not a good sight at all. I mean, it strikes me as well that radicalisation, you talk about the, the experience, that humiliation, the degradation. And, I mean, again, some people are clear. I mean, it's very important you made the point there that they weren't even prisoners of war because it's illegal under the Geneva Conventions to, um, I think, was it to parade as public curiosity prisoners of war? So mm. filming them in, in that way. But they're not even prisoners of war. These are civilians. And 90 to 95%, I, can't, I think on the IDF's own terms, uh, 85 to 90% were released on the basis that they were not judged to be yeah. in any case. So they were civilians. They weren't prisoners of war. Mm. But it, it's not just it's their experience. But then, you know, there's this moral panic often about TikTok radicalising people. But I can't think of any better material than the IDF gleefully posting videos on TikTok of them setting fire to homes, rummaging through the personal possessions of Palestinians or even stealing their stuff, blowing up universities they've dynamited or civilian properties and laughing hysterically um, and forcing detainees, often just civilians, uh, to chant humiliating things whilst they're stripped virtually naked. Yeah, it's, it's it's macabre. It's it's extraordinary. Um, and 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 if I'm you know, being generous, I, I don't think it is indicative of every single IDF soldier. I, I suspect there are very many, the majority are decent people, but but it only needs a few bad apples to rot the core, you know, of that crop. And 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 what we saw, I think, started to make people think about you know some of those issues of morality etc etc i mean i think the other thing that people are questioning Owen, is is other other issues not not just that but questions about distinction in the idf's targeting the distinction between who's a combatant and who's a non-combatant who's a civilian big questions have been asked right from 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 early october questions about proportionality you know, whether it's appropriate to drop a £2,000 bomb, you know, onto a residential apartment block in order to kill a few Hamas, you know, even if it results in, you know, the death of, what, 50, 60 civilians. Big questions about them. And when you start to question things like distinction and proportionality, then one starts to question legality. Um, I mean, I, I, I kind of, like everybody, I was very open-minded about this. I, I fully expected a vicious response from Israel after the 7th of October. It was inevitable. They would have had some, some some targets to strike. But I think everybody was completely taken aback in the sort of what? 
second or third week as the ground war was about to start. By the, the, the numbers of Palestinian civilians, or palace, sorry, the sheer number of Palestinians that were being killed as a result of Israeli bombing, it, it was really uncomfortable to watch that, really uncomfortable. And, 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 and I, you know, although I think those numbers have sort of tailed off on a daily basis, I, I think that made people question whether this was the right response by Israel uh, um, uh, you know, or, or whether this was just a reaction, not a strategy, but a reaction, you know, a, 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 a pushing back, a violent sort of immediate response to the events of what happened on the 7th of October, rather than a deliberate, wise, calculated strategy. And, and as everybody knows, to react in anger with a hot head is the wrong thing to do. But I think that's what we saw certainly in October. Just on that, before I ask you about that question of civilian targets and, and, and how they, I guess, the Israeli state has prosecuted this onslaught. Um, Yov Gallant, who's the Minister of Defence, who's, I think people often know, you know, when he, he spoke about the siege that was imposed on Gaza and where all water, energy, everything was cut off, he said, um, on the basis we're fighting human animals. I'm interested what you think about that. Uh, which was cited in South Africa's case at the ICJ. But the other thing he said, which was which the judge, the president of the ICJ, noted specifically in her judgment, was that two or three days after the onslaught began, he told Israeli soldiers um, that I have released all restrictions on soldiers. And I'm just wondering what you think about that statement, which was because that's, I mean, as I said, that's specifically in the ICJ judgment about what the Minister of Defence actually told soldiers, which is that all restrictions have been removed. I'm just, as a former soldier, what, what, well, as a soldier, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, this suggestion that you remove all restrictions. I mean, I mean, what do you mean by that, Minister? <laughs> well, all, all, all legal constraints? <laughs> um, mm. You know, that's not within your gift to do that, is what I would be saying to a minister if I was the chief of defence. Um, I, I think that's kind of my my, my, my first point on that one. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's inevitable that there was going to be a, a violent reaction. Um, you know, Gallant, Gallant, right at the beginning, I think on about day two or day three, said, you know, the mission here is to eliminate Hamas. To eliminate and, and I remember kind of thinking to myself about that is that a political goal is that a kind of military goal H how realistic of that you know but the first thing one has to do in war is to set realistic end states a, a realistic end state that can be achieved and then to set one you know a series of military objectives where they're going to contribute to that one this idea that you can eliminate Hamas by military force alone was is deeply flawed, a deeply, deeply flawed idea. And, and, and I think, yeah, this is at the heart of my kind of concern, right from the outset, that yeah, you, they can try to kill their way to victory. They can try to kill their way to peace, but it, it's not going to work. And, and I don't want to sort of draw too many parallels with Northern Ireland. We, we, we got to peace in Northern Ireland over a 30-year period through compromise and political accommodation. We didn't get there through a decisive military victory. And that is the same in all ultimately political problems. And you know, let's face it, I don't need to tell you, this is a political problem. This isn't a military problem which we're facing here. 
And the problem with Israel is it's one of the most militarized societies in the world, Owen. And when you have that, every problem looks like it can either be only be solved with a tank. Um, yeah, that is but that is the problem of having a militarized society, and and that's that's how they've approached this problem. Um, so so I think you know Gallant was wrong. I think it was an unrealistic end state elimination purely through a military operation. It's never going to happen. You know this is this is this is just. I've said this a thousand times. I'll always say this. This war has to be viewed as part of the continuation of violence that has taken place through the 21st century. 1948, 1967, 1973, 1982, 2006. If, if, if Gallant and Netanyahu thinks this is going to be any more decisive, is going to bring peace to Israel and Palestine, anything more than any of the other wars, then they're, they're naive, simplistic and foolish. On that, you mentioned 2006, you refer there to the Second Lebanon War. Um, 972 plus 972 magazine is it's an Israeli-Palestinian um, magazine, and they did a really fascinating, in-depth piece called uh, A Mass Assassination Factory, which they was based on conversations with um, Israeli intelligence officers uh, who gave basically an explanation of how this war was being conducted. Um, and they spoke about so-called power targets, which are, for example, high-rise buildings. So one of them says, the perception is that it really hurts Hamas when high-rise buildings are taken down because it creates a public reaction in the Gaza Strip and scares the population. They wanted to give the citizens of Gaza the feeling that Hamas is not in control of the situation. Sometimes they topple buildings and sometimes postal service and uh, government buildings. The reason I mentioned 2006 is they go on to say, although it's unprecedented for the Israeli army to attack more than 1,000 power targets in five days, the idea of causing mass devastation to civilian areas for strategic purposes was formulated in previous military operations in Gaza, honed by the so-called Dahe Doctrine from the Second Lebanon War 2006. Now, that was developed by the former IDF chief of staff, who's now part of the current war cabinet, in the war against, for example, Hez um, Hezbollah. The idea you use disproportionate and overwhelming force while targeting civilian and government infrastructure in order to establish deterrence and force the civilian population to pressure the Greeks to end their attacks. That sounds a lot like terrorism to me, if I'm honest. And one of the intelligence officers themselves actually said to them, they said um, that they said that if, for example, they attack an Islam Islamic jihad office, uh, sorry, a tower block, which just has on the 10th floor uh, an office you could say is Islamic jihad, you bring down the entire high rise, including a load of civilians, and they say, you know, with the aim of pressuring civilian families who live in it in order to put pressure on terrorist organizations, he said, if we said that, this would be seen as terrorism. So we don't say it. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's... Um... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's a lot of theories around warfare and how to win wars and in the Second World War, you know, there was this view if we attack the German industrial base, you know, it will shorten the war. Some some truth in that. If you attack the transport hubs, you know, the major cities of Dresden and Berlin and places like that, that will hasten, you know, shorten the war. And, and, and they're never necessarily found. And for a number of years, for I think for the last 20 years, people have been looking for the, the silver bullet that will bring wars to an end quickly. We, we talk it identifying the enemy's centre of gravity and striking it, that, that thing which will cause him to collapse. And very often, you know, that, that centre of gravity is defined as the leader. If you hit the right leader or the right group of senior leaders, the organisation will collapse and splinter or surrender. This, this kind of notion that, that you refer to, that you bomb residential buildings, um, in order to bring about effective military victory. I, I don't really know where that comes from. I don't know any other military that follows a doctrine that's related to that one. I, I think it's a wishful thinking. I think it's a bizarre way of fighting a war. And I can't help thinking, Owen, that it's punitive. It's intended to punish rather than actually intended to achieve anything. Who's it punishing? The civilian population. Why? Because Israel perceives them as supporting Hamas. I mean, that's nonsensical. It's nonsensical. It's probably illegal in terms of international humanitarian law. And it certainly appears to me to be unethical. It's absolutely legitimate to target Yahya Simwar. It's absolutely legitimate to target the tunnel system. Absolutely legitimate to target you know, factories that might be producing rockets or, or, or any of that stuff. But to target residential accommodation blocks for some reason is is bizarre. But I absolutely I think that's what, what we're seeing. Some of the some of the imagery we're seeing at the moment from North Gaza, it, it's it's post-apocalyptic. It almost looks like somebody's dropped a nuclear bomb on it. it looks like Hiroshima or Nagasaki. I mean it's staggering. I, I, you know, I know. There's a lot of collateral damage when you fight in an urban area, you know, whether that is in Mosul or whether that is in Raqqa or whether that is wherever. I, I get that. But I'm afraid an awful lot of the, the damage, the, the sheer extent of the damage in, in the northern part of the Gaza City looks to me to be deliberate. It, it's hard to view it as anything other than deliberate, not as collateral damage as a result of a tough urban fight. It looks almost like, and I've said this, it looks almost like a deliberate policy to prevent the Palestinians from returning to that area. And that's uncomfortable. I mean, do you think as, you know, speaking of military experience, you, you look at this and think, well, actually, this can't be based on a kind of military end because of, a lot of Israeli ministers are very open about the fact they want to ethnically cleanse Gaza of the Palestinian population altogether. And a lot of them keep using this term voluntary migration, which is an absurdity. People don't leave their homes. But the way you frame it is you make it an inhospitable place to live. 
And therefore, you say, for humanitarian reasons, those who have survived are going to have to leave. And you in, and 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 do you think that's the danger here? What you're seeing from a military perspective is basically you raise, you make it inhospitable, and therefore you lay the grounds for just getting rid of the Palestinians. I mean, we we called it ethnic cleansing in the Balkans. So, you know, we didn't we didn't mince our words about it. it. It was called ethnic cleansing, the deliberate destruction of property, fear and intimidation, and violence in order to drive a population out of an area. And, and and all factions did that in the Balkans in, in the 1990s. And now, now the only thing that I take issue with your comment there is I think you said, or you, you suggested that all Israelis think like this. I'm not sure. Oh, no, 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 I didn't say that. Yeah, no, no, no. no. I, 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 I think the majority... No, I said Israeli ministers. Sorry, Israeli yeah, yeah, ministers. No, absolutely. I, 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 yeah, the, the, the Galants and the far right, the lick of members and all of that, absolutely, no doubt about this. They've said this is their policy. Yeah, um, I think there were 12 cabinet ministers, weren't there, at this sort of resettled Gaza um, conference party last week. Um, yeah, I, it's good. They, they've said it. They've said this is their aim. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, when one looks at the level of destruction in North Gaza, you know, there might be evidence that backs up their words. Yeah, acts, words and deeds is what we've seen there, to be quite honest. It's hard to view it as anything other. It's hard to suggest anything other than that. Just in terms of some of the excuses that have been used, and I, I worry a little bit about kind of contagion, about how basically war crimes are normalised, um, where Israel will argue, well, all defenders of Israel's behaviour in, in Gaza will say uh, either, oh, always move the conversation back to 7th of October, um, where atrocities were committed, and obviously no should be any illusion about that. The clock didn't begin on the 7th of October, and obviously you mentioned that, that horrific history of the Palestinian population have, have suffered. They've been occupied, displaced, ethnically cleansed um, on a grand scale. Met various international organisations call it apartheid. Uh, they suffered mass slaughter, incarceration. We could go on. Um, but they'll say 7th of October, uh, or they'll say, well, Hamas commit war crimes, or they'll say, because, you know, they'll claim it's not the 7th of October, therefore... Uh, they started it, and therefore everything that happens, everything Israel's army does, they'll say, well, that's Hamas's fault altogether. And that just means you give yourself a charter to behave as you wish. You can do anything then and just say, well, blame Hamas. And that, for me, seems like there's a, you know, a lot of people who regard, who will call themselves moderate and sensible and all the rest of it, end up normalising overt war crimes. And where does that leave? Yeah, I mean, as you rightly say, 7th of October was abhorrent, was utterly repellent. And I said, everybody involved in the massacre on that day, you know, deserves a special place in hell. There's no doubt about that. Indefensible. Um, but as you rightly say, history didn't start on the 7th of October. It didn't. And irrespective of the evils that were committed by Hamas on the 7th of October, that doesn't give anybody, it doesn't mean that, that you know, the Israeli Defence Forces have any right to resort to those levels of barbarity. It doesn't. That's not what proportionality is all about. People say proportionality means that the Israelis should be allowed to do exactly what Hamas did on the 7th of October. No, that's not the case. All of those would be war crimes. But the difference, of course, in my mind is Israel is, a, on the face of it, a democratic state. Hamas is a non-state actor. It's not, it's not wrong that we should be holding Israel and the Israeli Defence Forces to a much higher standard of behaviour than we do Hamas. This is the kind of key point. And, and if, if 
Israel, if the Israeli defense forces lose their moral compass and commit war crimes or acts that are bordering on war crimes, which are unethical, then, then they, they lose that moral superiority, that moral supremacy, which they have all that they have. It's absolutely appropriate. We should be holding them. You know, we held ourselves in Afghanistan to a higher standard of accountability than we did the Taliban. Of course we do. It's absolutely right. And uh, it's, it's, it's madness to suggest otherwise. I'm, I'm, I'm struck daily by, by the number of people who just say, what about 7th of October, Charlie? What about the 7th of October? You know, Hamas did it. Hamas, you know, raped and murdered and whatever they did, all of those abhorrent things, um, you know, and suggest that that gives the Israeli Defence Forces legitimacy to do that. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. IDF must hold themselves to a higher standard than that, mustn't stoop to that level. And occasionally I fear that they have done. Just a couple of other things. About, about, by the way, the, the point you made, I think, because so, you, you, you've mentioned the Balkans a few times, and mm. um, it's interesting, quite a few Bosnian figures have, have spoken out um, and made parallels. And just on that, and I've made this point before, uh, the Bosnian Serb population themselves, civilians, suffered horrible atrocities against them. There were terrible atrocities committed against Bosnian Serbs that didn't give any legitimacy to the crimes then committed by the Bosnian Serb armies, including, of course, at Srebrenica, where they were obviously charged with genocide. Um, but but they they did use the atrocities committed against Bosnian Serb civilians to justify that behaviour. And I don't think anyone rational would look at that and think that that in any way legitimised that behaviour. But I just want to go back just to a couple of other things. That point you made about, I do think, obviously Northern Ireland is very different, but, you know, as we speak, the leader of Sinn Féin is becoming Northern Ireland's first minister. There was not a military victory by Britain in Northern Ireland. And actually, if we think about Bloody Sunday, um, if we think about, um, why have I forgotten the name? Ma mass detention without charge. Incarcerate, what was it called? In, in, internment. Internment, yes, sorry. Internment. All of those things actually just recruited and recruited and recruited mm. the IRA, didn't it? It didn't, it didn't make the war shorter. It made it, it made it a lot worse. And this idea, you can defeat an idea, because I think it, it's been, Hamas you just, is easy to, to portray on the, on the part of Israel. It's a military force. You crush them. They're just a bunch of terrorists. That's the end of Hamas. It doesn't work like that. There's a, there's a, it's a political movement and ideology. You can't militarily defeat an idea, can you? No, and if you, yeah, Northern Ireland analogy, it's a crude one. Yeah, Northern Ireland in the late 1960s, when, when it all sort of kicked off again, um, was a result of great social and economic injustice mm -hmm. of the Catholic population. Mm -hmm. and, and it was inevitable that that armed resistance came out of that. You know, from the civil rights movement in the 1960s grew armed resistance again. And, and how was that defeated over the next sort of 30 years? There's a little bit of military pressure and intelligence pressure and policing pressure was applied to the RA. But ultimately, the root causes of that conflict were addressed. Economic, equal rights, human rights for Catholics, employment prospects, the full kind of weight of government, military, economic, information, diplomatic, all of those things 
were applied to deal with the Northern Ireland problem, as we called it, as we called it. And, and by the late sort of 1980s, it was obvious, I think, to everybody involved that a political process was going to bring about a successful outcome quicker than a military one. We could still be fighting if we hadn't. Been. And, and, and that lesson should not be lost on, on, on Israel right now. That, you know, Northern Ireland was not one. Peace did not come about as a result of military action. It didn't. And it won't in Gaza either. Um, it's got to be a long-term political process, it, it, everything. I, I mean, uh, we, we've not used the O word, occupation, Owen. Until occupation is addressed and dealt with, violence will continue. And, and my great fear, Owen, is that this war will come to an end at some point over the next couple of months, but it's just a frozen conflict and it will spark again in three years time and six years time and nine years time and 15 years time. And our children will still be talking about it Owen, because they haven't addressed the root causes of it. And that would be a tragedy. It would be a tragedy for the Palestinians, but it would be a massive tragedy also for the Israelis. And, and that, that's why I feel passionate about this. That's kind of why I'm online. It's why I criticize Netanyahu. It's why I criticize the IDF. Because, you know, some good could come out of this atrocity and that would be a long term peace process in the Middle East. Mm. But, but that will only happen if, if all parties are prepared to address the root causes of the conflict. And my real what, what saddens me the most Owen, is I don't see that at the moment. I still see a hurt, pained, you know, Israeli government that's still determined to lash out because of what happened on 7th of October but isn't yet ready to look itself in the mirror and see what the problem was, mm. to understand what caused the 7th of October and to address that. And, and I, gosh, I hope they can do that. I do. It's going to take enormous compromise on both sides, on all sides. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's possible to eliminate Hamas any more than it was possible to eliminate the IRA and Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. It wasn't possible. You know, they, they, we could do certain things to them. We could apply leverage. Yeah, ultimately, Hamas, in my view, will end up being part of a long-term solution there. It will not be eliminated. It, it may change a name, you know, but the ideology will remain. It's got to be bought into the political process. You know, it, and, and, and that's going to be some kind of, whatever that is, almost certainly a two-state solution. But, but until occupation is addressed, this, this is just part of a continuum of violence that's been going on what for over 120 years now. Amen. I think that's very eloquently put. If you, no people on earth will ever accept being driven from their homes, ethnically cleansed, occupied, um, and deprived of their right to national self-determination. And that, that the, 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 the consequence, the political consequences of that may vary in different ways, but unless you address that root cause, uh, this will never end. And that's the point. There is no military solution to that basic underlying problem. Yeah. Um, there's no there's no winners in this. There's no winners. You know, both, both sides have got to compromise eventually uh, in order to find that solution, and that two-state solution. But I, gosh, I hope they can get their own and I hope they can get there quickly. And I hope we can get a ceasefire very, very quickly in Gaza so that no more you know, innocent civilians get caught up in this.
Charles, it's been so fascinating speaking to you. And, you know, it was so in, important, I think. And, you know, I can see it from the comments. People wanted to hear kind of from a military perspective, um, even, you know, on its own terms, because um, the, Israel does have, at the moment, it has had a blank check for a long time. It is armed and supported by the West. And what happens in Gaza is essentially in our names to some degree, because it is a Western ally. Um, but I think just talking about someone from military experience, the arguments presented on their own terms by Israel, just taking those apart, I think is 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 really, really important. Um, and it's important we have a range of voices, we, from Israeli peace activists to uh, Palestinians and very insightful guests like yourself. So please, those watching or listening, do share and press like and subscribe. But Charlie, it's been an honour. Thank you so much. No, Owen, thank you very much indeed for having me on your programme. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.